today we sit down with Eric Whitaker and Tony Silvestri, musician and poet, and discuss the marriage of text and music and the marriage of old and new in their collaboration together. This is Early Music Monday. things before we dive right into the interview. Um, I just can't even express how grateful I am and how excited I am to have this episode release with Eric and Tony. Their music has been, their art together has been inspiring me for a long time and I feel like is the perfect marriage of text and music and old and new into this new thing. And I just want to say in my experience just meeting with them and talking with them, their friendship is amazing and inspiring. They're so complimentary of each other and so like kind and the love they have for each other is really special. It's really cool. And so um, I hope you hear that too in the way they, they uh, interact and it's really cool. So during the interview... Uh, Eric, Tony, and I will talk about or mention a specific piece of music, and we'll talk about it, we'll kind of talk about some of the nuts and bolts, and maybe how it's related to other things, and so periodically throughout this episode, I'm going to pause the interview, and I'll introduce and play a recording of the piece that's about to be spoken of, so that way you can have a reference point for some of the things that we talk about. Um, if you are familiar, then it's a great chance to just like remind yourself of, you know, the the piece. If if you're not familiar, it's a great way to be introduced to it. So that way, when we're talking about it, you can understand it and make sense of it. So, without any more dilly dally, we're just gonna jump right into the interview with Eric Whitaker and Tony Silvestri. Okay, Eric and Tony, welcome. The dynamic duo. I feel like I'm talking to like Simon and Garfunkel or like Paul and John and you know, this kind of dynamic duo of uh collaboration. So to start, I guess I would love to hear maybe maybe how you two met, how the collaboration started and kind of how it's built to what it is today. Either of you yeah. can go first. Yeah. I don't know who wants to go first, but yeah, I'll be Ringo in this one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we met, we've told this story a lot. And I'm uh, sure we met in choir, um, which is where all fun meetings happen. Um, <laughs> yes. I, I was in graduate school in Los Angeles and I needed to take a year off for a whole variety of reasons. And so I moved back home with my parents in Las Vegas, where I grew up. And my plan was to live with them for a year and save some money and study for my qualifying exams, et cetera, et cetera. And I couldn't just not be in a choir. I had been singing in LA in, in college and at church. And so I, and I wanted to be in, in, a, in a choir. And so I went to UNLV, introduced myself to David Weiler, who was the choir director, the director of choral studies there. And said, yeah, this is who I am. This is what kind of experience I have. Um, I auditioned for him and I said, I'd just like to be put into a choir, whichever one. And I forget the name of the choir he put me in, but it was the one that Eric was in as an undergrad. Uh, 
And I remember we just became the closest of friends right off the bat. Yeah, immediately. Um, I think that first weekend or after the first week, there was a choir retreat. And uh, and by then, Eric and I were just best friends. It's, it's as if we had known each other for our whole lives. Wow. And that was 30, how many years ago was that? 30, 30, 30 what, 32, 32 years, years ago. My God, 32 wow. years. Yeah. I won't tell you how old I was then when that happened. <laughs> were, were you that old? Were you even I was, alive then? I was one. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so I was an 89er. But that's amazing because um, personal story too is my dad worked at UNLV for years because that's where I grew up. Really? And so I was a ball boy for the basketball team. He worked at the Thomas and Mac. So he does events and that sort of thing. And so I was at wow. I was at every UNLV game, sweeping oh, the floor and hanging out with the mascots. And I mean, UNLV was the best. I was like, this is the greatest place. You know, it was awesome. Yeah. So yep. I have a great, great love in my heart for UNLV. So that's really cool. That's beautiful. Well, and then the way we began working together, I mean, I, it's funny because not only were we best friends, but we were kind of co-conspirators in this. We were we were just nerds together. And so yeah. amongst a million things, and I'll talk about this later, but Tony introduced me to a dozen things that ended up having monumental effect on my later life. Everything from Indian food and sushi, I'd never had either. <laughs> Tony, Tony introduced me to both, to... Yeah. All, all kinds of literature and probably even the Renaissance, frankly. It's probably the first time I even heard about anything like that was from Tony. But Tony handed me a couple of different times music to listen to. And I remember distinctly two different CDs that he gave me. One was uh, David Hikes, Hearing Solar Winds, the Harmonic Choir. And mm. the other one was Arville Parrott, the Passio. Mm. And I, I cannot overstate how how dramatic an impact those two pieces had on my writing career still do. Yeah. And I know that we'll be talking about sacred veil later on. And to me, those two discs are all over yeah. the sacred veil. And, um, and so, so when we, when I think about our collaboration, it wasn't just Luke's room, which is our first piece together. It was from the very beginning. I felt like I can't remember a time that I wasn't learning from Tony and being yeah. changed by Tony. And that continues to this day. That's awesome. Yeah, that's amazing. You, and it's, it's probably so hard to describe. I, I guess you could probably look back now and and find these, what are the building blocks that kind of made those things happen? How to, you know, you bounce ideas off. But in the moment, you're just, it's just this kind of organic kind of outpouring of ideas back and forth. And yeah, that's really cool. That's exactly so, right. And so also, how did, not, not to interrupt camera. No, yeah, no, go for it. You don't realize this in, in later in life, but when, when you're in school, you have this, this very small, very rare, essential window of time when you're wide open and you have nothing to do. Mm. You know, people who th are in school think they're busy, <laughs> but, but, but you're, you're just you're, you're insatiably curious, and yeah. that's what you're supposed to be doing is just absorbing things. And so just the fact that, that, that I met Tony during that exact time, that exact window when I was open and, and impressionable, I think that's why so many of the things Tony shared with me had this indelible effect. Yeah, that's fantastic. And, and again, it's one of those things where in my mind, you, every, you, like you said, you're insa it's this insatiable curiosity, this sponge-like where it feels like you're discovering 
everything for the first time, even if yeah. you've come across it before, it's like suddenly new again. Yeah, that's really cool. So and then how did it lead to, others. oh no, I'm I keep sorry. saying I, I things and go then on. just interrupting you. You go for no, it though, that's no, great. You're absolutely right because we're gonna spend an hour and a half of me talking about how great Tony is. But <laughs> but yeah, you're, you're, you're also, you're, you're, they consume you, right? That those yeah. things, they consume you and, and you're transformed by it in a way that is really hard later on in your life. To, to have an, an experience like that. And like you said, it can be the most casual thing that's introduced to you. Yeah. And then th that's it. You, that's yeah. you're a different person from the, from that time forward. Sorry. I, I won't No, talk. this is great. So my question then to follow up on that is what do you think, I mean, like you said, you're kind of the whole world is before you, but what are maybe some other things that you think makes that possible? Tony, this question goes to you too of, of why is you said it's harder later in life. What do you think makes it harder later? Or what do you mm -hmm. think is unique about that time? Besides just you're in this environment of learning. I mean, besides that, what are some other things you think that make it such, I don't know, I can just move my hands like this to such represent the word time. I'm trying to think of. But I mean, I, I think it's, it's, it's the nature of being young. It's the nature of being in a community of learning. The, the university is a unique kind of guild of, of curious people researchers, writers, thinkers, talkers, creators, and you're all stuck together on this campus that's kind of curated to be a place where people meet and walk and talk and kind of Aaron Sorkin sort of uh, set where we, you yeah. can all walk and talk all the time. And, and the fact that you're spending your day in a variety of classes, some of which are fun, some of which are boring, some you're ticking the boxes off, getting to a degree, and others are electives that you've chosen to take because you're really interested in the subject matter. When you're involved in that kind of, in that kind of moment, uh, as Eric says, your brain is open, you are receptive, and you're with other people who can stay up all night right? And you go yeah. to Denny's or IHOP or whatever, and, and you have these rambling philosophical conversations that go on until four in the morning. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, you're partying, you're experimenting, you're having fun, you're also learning. I mean, it's just, it's like, I can imagine the last time you have the experience that a baby has of yeah. just absorbing stimulus all the time and how exciting that must be. Um, you know, and then you graduate and you got to pay the electric bill and <laughs> you have a family and kids and, you, you know, you notice a crack in the, in the molding and you have to call kit, you know? Yeah. Um, right. That's my, my life now. I'm trying to sell my house. And so I'm just I'm oh, my. Knee deep in, in calk. Hey, it's the seller's long. market though. That's awesome. It is. I know. I, it's, it's, I've, I've been very lucky. So I'm blessed. It's awesome. Yeah. And I think that, I think that, that, Time is a really important part of that. I think the time that you spend in those activities and the, and the vicinity itself, because like you said, I think about when I graduated, I felt like I went alone into the world, you know? So it's just, like you said, surrounded. And then you're, I mean, you're doing that all day, every day. So I think that's really cool. Well, and I teach in a university classroom and I have for the last 15 years or so. And it's sad to me when, when the majority of the class seems to just be bumbling through their education and very passive about it. And then you get those core students every single semester that are, are sponges and, and can't learn enough and can't participate enough. 
And I really appreciate those extraordinary students who are grabbing their education and, and being really, really proactive about it. Yeah. So the first piece that Eric, Tony, and I get into is their first collaboration, Luke's Arumque, which is light and gold. And really briefly, I'll read the translation, the English translation of Tony's Latin translation, which you'll hear about. So Lux Arumque, light, warm and heavy as pure gold, and angels sing softly to the newborn babe. Here's a recording now of BYU singers performing Lux Arumque from their CD of the collected works of Eric Whitaker, conducted by Dr. Ron Staley.
I feel like that kind of leads right into, you know, your first, like you said before, your first collaboration, Luke's or Roomque, and and this this idea of that being, I mean, like you said, it's kind of that was maybe the the spark that the rest of the world saw as like the first thing, even though you have all these tiny moments leading up to that. But what yeah. what came about from that collaboration that you feel like like kept you going? What about that one was, I guess, so particularly special other than it was mm-hmm. the first one? Well, it was funny. The, the, from my perspective, what happened was I, um, well, I'll, I'll tell the super short version of the story, but yeah, sure. I, I, got an email from a rather famous choral conductor and he said, I'd like to commission a piece, a Christmas piece in memory of my father who had passed. And this was like in October and he needed it three weeks later. And I said, uh, we might be able to do this in two years. And I was in the middle of a couple of pieces. Yeah. And um, then he wrote me back a really moving email. And, um, and that night as I was sitting there just thinking about what he'd written me, I came up with... Just those two chords. And for me, when I'm writing a piece of music, that kind of thing is what I call my golden brick. It's my way in. And I've never, ever spoken about this publicly before. I don't even know if I've ever mentioned this to Tony. But the end of Arvo Pert's Passio, which I mentioned before, that's that's taken. And then the Amen. It's, it's way up here. And then... It's in a different key, but that's directly quoting Arvo Pert. So it's not even that I'd come up with it. I was just like, as I always do, just endlessly ruminating on those two chords. Yeah. And so I knew then that um, that there was something there. There was I, and I wrote to to this conductor and I said, "All oh, right, I think I've got this." And we agreed on this low, low price of five hundred dollars for a commission. And and okay, let's do this. And that's when I sat down and I wrote this little poem by Edward Esch. He's my, my gnome de plume. And yeah. so I wrote, you know, light, warm as he- and heavy as pure gold. And then I called up Tony and said, would you translate this into Latin? And for me, it wasn't just that I, I wanted it in this beautiful mystical language, but that especially as someone who doesn't speak or understand Latin, especially the way Tony does or have that depth of it, what I loved about Latin was that you could meditate on a word without any sense of mm. forward momentum. Mm. You know, like the idea if if the first bit is the word lux, right? But if we were to do that in English, we'd say light, 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 like you're repeating it over and over. And at some point, the, the English-speaking mind says, light what? Yeah. Light go, light on, light, <laughs> like what's happening, right? Yeah. There's this sense of expectation. But somehow with Latin... I find like the word luke's very specifically retains somehow the essence of light it's in our our cultural dna we kind of connect to the but we don't expect anything afterwards yeah and it's my favorite thing in music um this idea of something that's moving forward and standing still at the same time wow that's what i always loved about arvo Pert's music is it sounds yeah. like there's forward momentum and it's not going anywhere i was gonna say that you just described to me what i would view arvo Pert as being this this repet- this repetition that doesn't get old but isn't going anywhere either simultaneously and and how does he keep that energy in it without the progression so to speak yeah it's right awesome. that's and, awesome and we could go on and on about that not only <laughs> yeah. not only the architectural way that he does that but the use of dissonance Anyway, yeah. so so I I proposed that to Tony, 
And then Tony, why don't you take the story from there with Luke's? Yeah, you know, and I approached, I was teaching high school history at the time and, and I had written my dissertation in Latin and as, as a medievalist. And so, you know, Latin was something that, that I could control intellectually. And so I approached this favor basically as an intellectual exercise, a scholarly exercise, but I did so as a singer. And Eric and I talked about what kind of sounds and, and uh, you know, we always joke about he wanted as many ooms as possible because that's just wonderfully, deliciously singable. Yeah. And, and we went roundabout about Latin grammar and how you can and can't do some things and I can't break a rule. But, and so I found it to be like a Rubik's cube of, of making singable choices. So, so that the, the translation of the original poem is defendable to a classicist, right? They would look at it yeah. and say, mm, okay, yeah, um, mm, eh, okay, yeah. decent, right? <laughs> so it makes, right. It's, it's a, it renders a good translation, but from the singer's point of view, it works. It's not, I mean, there are some Latin words, you know, um, ebus endings and stuff like that, that are kind of clunky. And so there would be a literal way, a much more accurate way to render what Eric had written um, that's not singable. And so sure. what I stumbled on, and I didn't even know that I was doing it, was, was lyric poetry, right? Yeah. Making choices to, to not write necessarily the way that I would write as a poet, but write the way that I need to write as a lyricist. And I, and, I, and I just, I sang through, I chanted the thing and just to make sure that it had mouth feel and all this kind of um, singability without really knowing what it was that I was doing or what right. seeds I was planting. You know, this goes back to an earlier part of our conversation where, where um, you know, my relationship with Eric ends up growing fruit that, that I couldn't even have predicted yeah, now, totally. 20 some odd years later. Um, this was in 1999 or 2000, I think, 2001, when, when we did Luke's. And, and it was a fun exercise. But again, I didn't recognize what it was I, that I was doing at the time. Right. And as I recall, it was followed immediately by Sleep and Leonardo That's as right. the same sort of exercises where I was kind of doing a favor for my friend. But yeah. what I was actually doing was becoming a lyric poet. Yeah. Um, and or or expressing some kind of creativity that was in me nascently that I didn't even know was was latent there. Yeah. And even hearing you two talk about it, I, I can tell why you work so well together because you you have this this give and take and these perspectives that kind of form this awesome perspective on the art form in general. Yeah, And so I, I think that's beautiful. That's amazing. So how did that take you, like, not to segue so abruptly, but to segue so abruptly, let's, <laughs> to, to talk about, because um, I know the story, and I, I'm sure a lot of listeners know the story. Maybe we can get together another day and talk about the, the story behind sleep and the, the Robert Frost thing. But to get into Leonardo, to me, the reason why that piece is so significant when I was first introduced to it, I performed it at BYU-Idaho, and it was just a sonic experience that I had never heard before. And I was just like, what is happening? This is cool. <laughs> but then as I got into my, my graduate studies with Ron Staley and, and Andrew Crane and really delved into early music and became this kind of super freak nerd about early music, I realized, <clears throat> excuse me, oh my goodness, this is Monteverdi in the 20s, 21st century. 
And I saw Dr. Staley before they went. It was his last semester at BYU before he retired. They went on tour to China, and he paired Leonardo with Sfogava con la Stella by yeah. Monteverdi in this program. And I, I was, like, transformed from that. I was like, this is genius. What is music? I have no idea. Like, <laughs> I've never felt like so. I know absolutely nothing. I'm going to just quit now, you know. So... We're going to listen to, really quickly, I'm going to interject a recording of Monteverdi's piece that uh, was just mentioned, Sfogava con le stelle. And this performance is by Jesualdo Six. And this recording can just, it can be found on YouTube. Here's a translation of the Italian A lovesick man was venting to the stars his grief under the night sky. And staring at them, he said, O beautiful images of my idol whom I adore, just as you are showing me her rare beauty, while you sparkle so well, so also demonstrate to her my living ardor. By your golden appearance, you'd make her compassionate just as you make me loving. So you're going to hear the imagery and the emotion in the performance. And then right after that, I'll play the recording of BYU singers performing Leonardo Dreams of His Flying Machine. And then I'll let the interview roll again so we can hear Eric and Tony talk about it. Oh, 
this whole world of old and new combine and I, and so I've been ever since I started this podcast I've wanted to talk to you two about this piece and those connections textually and musically and and how that came about and maybe some of the elements that you two find from then that you put into the now and then some of the new that came from it so that's a lot I'll just let you two run with it though well, I'll tell you. So I'll, I'll start with the anecdote of how it came about, but it's important, uh, yeah. the anecdote. So I, uh, at the time, this was 2001, or I guess I would have gotten the call in 2000 when I was 30. And I got this call that they wanted to, I, I was being offered the Raymond Brock Commission from oh, yeah. the American Coral Directors Association, which is a big deal, you know, and yeah. especially I was 30 and really I just kind of started my writing career. And so it was far and away the biggest thing that had happened to me in terms of, of being a composer and, and in terms of a potential audience. And I remember because my favorite thing in the world was going to these national conferences, right? Because yeah. you're just, you're sitting with, those were back in the days too, before there were three different tracks. It was all the same group of people. You yeah. know, so you'd be there with 3,000 of your fellow choir geeks and you'd hear just choir after choir after choir changing yeah. your life. And, and so I knew from the moment they asked me, I knew I will never have an opportunity like this again, where there will be an entire auditorium full of people who get what it is to be a choir geek, right? Like, so like yeah. you said, for instance, so that you can, you can quote Monteverdi and people will know, they'll actually hear it and understand yeah. what you're doing, right? And for years I had had this, just a title rattling around in my head, Leonardo Dreams of His Flying Machine. I, I didn't even think of it as a choral piece. I thought maybe it could be a movie or a novel. I just thought that's a great title. That's, yeah. that's, that's something I would like to see. And so I called up Tony and said, okay, I've got this commission and I, <laughs> we're less like this now somewhat, but I'm sure it was a little more bullying, which is like, you're writing the poetry for it. Like, I, I remember it as a little bit bullying. Yeah. yeah you remember those days where it was just yeah. like, this is what's happening now. And so <laughs> That sounds like Paul and John, I'm telling you. <laughs> well, part of that, too, is because Tony is so humble about his, like, incomparable gifts that I always felt like I had to be the the machinery to, to like, crack that open, you know? Like, yeah. so if I came in just like a bull in a china shop, then <laughs> he had no choice but to like he said just oh, i'm just writing a piece for my friend that that somehow would reframe that right if i was right. so crazy about <laughs> all of it yeah um, that's cool you combine with that you combine that with my i have a kind of deep servant's heart and and so i want to please and i want to make everything great right and so when my best friend asks for this kind of favor I jump through hoops inside my own spirit to get it done and to get it done quickly. I, I write for you, Eric, more quickly than I do for anybody else. Really? Just because, yeah, just because I know you I and I want so badly to write something good for you. Huh. Um, and and that is an engine inside me. The, the, the servant engine works really, really powerfully for me. And so That's I remember okay. one time you suggested, I, 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 I couldn't write... I couldn't write poetry just for myself. And I think it was you who suggested, well, why don't you just invent, just pretend like you're writing it for me. And, and that allowed me to then break through the, oh, I don't have anything to say. Nobody wants to read what I, oh, I'm doing this for someone. 
okay, I can do that. Yeah, wow. Um, and the Leonardo process was really a, a push and pull uh, of that. Um, and remember, I wanted to hide behind Leonardo. I wanted to hide behind all sorts of things. And you insisted, Eric, that it be my voice, that I tell a story, that it needs to be more narrative. It needs to be more me and less Leonardo. I had originally went to Leonardo's uh, notebooks and pulled out all these things about flight and, and the first draft I presented to Eric was just all Italian. It was just all quotes of Leonardo. Yep. And he's like, nope, 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 nope. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I, uh, and I, I think that's still, I mean, that takes all the way to Sacred Veil. It's just always yeah. me, like, yeah. like trying to, trying yeah. to, um, but, but so I knew then with, with that title, in my mind, what it was then was this is Leonardo, this visionary, right? And he's dreaming into the future. So what does the future sound like to, to Leonardo? It sounds like Monteverdi, right? That's nearly 200 years into his future is Monteverdi yeah. writing. And so, so it's amazing that, that Ron paired it with Sfogava, the Monteverdi magical, because that was my starting point. Wow, And cool. I remember, yeah, so, so that the opening of Leonardo couldn't be more, it's not a direct quote, but it's like, here's Sfogava con this. It's, it's very much cut from that same cloth. Yeah. And th so the way I began was I, I had... I can't even remember who the performers were, but I had a CD of the, the fourth book of Madrigals, mm -hmm. uh, the, the Monteverdi. And I didn't even get a score. I just, like I most of the time do, I just put it in my headphones and listened to it on repeat for a month, just internalizing, what does that world sound like? How is he doing that? You know, and trying to, and early on then I made the, the decision, which I'd never done before, which is I'll write the way Monteverdi does in five parts. So two sopranos, yeah. alto, tenor, bass. I'd never done that before. I remember as I was doing it thinking, Oh, this is this makes all the sense in the world, right? Like, this solves so many issues when you've got those five voices, um, and so that was initially that was the sound, that was absolutely the sound as as Tony and I started to dance, and I say that we started to dance because this was really written like a like a song where. I, I would show Tony little sketches of music that had no poetry yet, and then he would write poetry, and then I would push and pull the music to fit that, or he would present me with poetry, and I would, I would write that, or I, and then I'd say to him, it's great, but it needs to be three syllables less, or it needs to have four syllables more, or it needs to connect to this, or, you know, we, it yeah. was like both of us in the mud together. That's an unusual way of writing a choral work. Yeah, um, but I think and, that's brilliant. To, sorry to interrupt. Like that, when you think I, I tried to talk to a couple of my choral colleagues, when you think about the great pop artists hmm. always keep progressing by when they do collab albums, and I'm like, why don't we do this? This is brilliant. And so to me, I'm just like, yes, keep it up. You know, this is awesome. Well, so, we but were yeah, very lucky. Going. We were lucky too that we lived like less than a quarter of a mile from one another at that time. Yeah, and so cool. we were always over at each other's place. And, and, you know, this was truly us sitting at the piano bench together, making Leonardo organically as a, as a collaborative partnership rather than yeah. the normal way, which is the poet is in a bubble and the composer is in a bubble. And um, there's really no contact during each other's creative process. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so I remember at one point that Tony gave me, he, I don't know if you call them this or I call them that and you've adopted it now, but he gave me a softball 
which is that Tony will sometimes serve up a, a line of poetry that is designed to just let me take the biggest possible swing. It's it couldn't be anything else, right? Yeah. He serves it up, and the vowels that are used, the 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 idea behind it, the word painting, it's literally all there. Like it, it yeah. You know, it would be a really bad day for me if I messed it up. And Tony, Tony presented me with this line that um, as the candle burns low, he paces and writes, releasing purchased pigeons one by one. And Tony, if I'm right, that that comes from his actual writings, right? That, that Leonardo would buy pigeons from the marketplace, release yeah. them, and then and try to sketch them, them as fast as possible. while they were flying away, yeah. To wow. somehow divine the, the secrets of flight, right? That's so right. he built his own flying machine. But so I re I'll never forget releasing purchased pigeons one by one. It's it's profoundly good poetry on every level, but especially because it harkens back to that that era of madrigals, right? That it's it hundred percent it, it right. It, that's exactly. In fact, the, there's probably even a one by one line in some madrigal, some some famous madrigal that's written. And so the, the word painting is all suggested. And up to that point, I'd say I was writing in a Monteverdi-ish style. Always I was imagining that it was early music, but then melted, you know, yeah. like dream melted. So even yeah, it sure. starts like Monteverdi and then like, <laughs> like melts, um, like the Matrix, uh, the movie, which I'll, I used in a big way in this piece. I'll, I'll tell you about that later. Nice. But I remember as I started to write that one by one bit that it felt very madrigal-esque, but then it gave this opportunity to like, suddenly be weaving and bobbing in keys and changing, just slightly pushing what might happen in a Monteverdi Madrigal even. And I thought, this is actually Jeswaldo. Like I, we kind of gone back in time a little bit, but it I remember so distinctly thinking, I'm basically writing the English Madrigal that Jeswaldo never wrote. You know, yeah. just, just that, that little clip there. <laughs> yeah. And, and it was very intentional, knowing that people in the audience would be listening to this at that premiere and going, oh, do you hear what that? Is? I I recognize what they're doing right there. Yeah, um, <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, that, there there were a zillion moments like that where where we were kind of toying with with these these known conventions, knowing that we'd be speaking on this other level to that initial audience. Wow, that's amazing. And what then? So when when you said you, you like would serve up softballs to to each other sometimes. Tony, was there ever a, a passage of music that maybe was that way for you with the poetry, kind of in reverse? I don't remember any specific passage, but I can speak generally to my, my relationship professionally with Eric. And Eric is very generous sharing music with me during his process. Um, I remember for Sacred Veil, there were lots of sort of chord moments and sound moodscapes and things like that that you would send me. And, and, and I made a playlist of them and I would, I would listen as if it was a Hearts of Space episode, you know, <laughs> yeah. um, just listening to that world while it was being formed. And I remember Leonardo was this, you know, we were always trying to hold lightning at, at you know, while it was crackling. So with Sacred Veil, it was the slower version of that process. Yeah. Um, but I'm always very inspired by, I mean, I love Eric's music and I listen to it all the time. Um, and to have been able to hear the birth of all of that in, in, in your career, just in general, Eric, but also in, in the individual pieces that we worked on together. Uh, is is fun and and a different a kind a different way of collaborating that I don't really have with any of the, my Me other too. composers. 
Yeah. I'll tell you, I remember one moment, Cameron, where it's, it's towards the end. And so Tony had written as the midnight watchtower tolls over rooftop oh, street rooftop, and yeah. um yeah all of that right so and and but then there was something else that followed that and as it's climbing and so again that's a soft wall for me right as the midnight watchtower tells oh right so there's and in the music it bongs 12 times right there's you yeah. hear the bell ringing midnight and then there's this rising action and i knew the music had to go to a certain place and i could almost play for tony see it's got to go here and it's going to do this thing and it's going to do this and at this time we were on the phone and I had I called him up and basically just thrown out the second half of whatever he had written for me. And I said, listen, it's like this da, 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 da. And it's gotta be like this, you know, this, this glorious moment where we sum up the whole thing. And I'll never forget Tony on the phone, on the fly said, how about something like in the triumph of a human being ascending in the dreaming of a mortal man? Something like that. I was like, wait. <laughs> What? Let me just be, pull this out of nowhere and make it this exact most epic, line. I, I remember writing it down like, yes, that's it. I'm like, that's God, unreal. It was so amazing. It was like, and, and so, so it, it was one of those moments where Tony took kind of a general musical idea that needed to happen and then was like, thunk, just yeah. shrink wrapped it into, into the perfect number of syllables, the right vowels. This is the other thing that never gets said enough is that because Tony's a singer and he's very, um, He's very sensitive to this. He gives great vowels when they need to be. So if there's a triumphant moment like that, you never get ooze and is, you know, you don't get things that you can't open up on. Yeah. The, the, the vowels themselves expand and open, or, you know, we joke about the ooms at the end of everything, but yeah. Tony's also very aware that that's the perfect vowel and consonant cluster to end a certain kind of phrase. Yeah. And so I always say as a composer, the best poetry has the music already bubbling in it. Yeah. And really my job is just to get out of the way and do what the poem is saying to do. And, yeah. and Tony often gives me those those lines that are just, it's like, just do that. Just do yeah. what it says right there and everything's <laughs> gonna be fine. Yeah, he already wrote it for you. Like he, yeah, exactly. he composed it's, it's, it and then here you are just, you know, my, really the Michelangelo is. of finding the sculpture in the marble kind of idea. And Yeah, I think that's or, a perfect way or, of doing it. Or, but it, it feels even more blatant to me. It's more like somebody handing you, you know, like, like the blueprints to the Sistine Chapel. Yeah. And then you building it and painting it and everybody being like, bravo, Mr. Whitaker. <laughs> That's what a lovely <laughs> cathedral you've, you, or chapel you've happened to build. Yeah, yourself. you got the Lego yeah, instructions you. with the pictures. And yeah, exactly. <laughs> right, yeah. right. Yeah. yeah, that's cool. That's great. Well, and that, and you know, to me, that's another thing with all of those old madrigals too, is those poems are so, I feel like the poems are the same way where where it has these moments of you know when i take i sometimes in my own uh, hobbyist compositional techniques i'll i'll just look on cpdl just search up books of madrigals and then not look mm. at the score and just look at the text and say where's the music then i'll just think about it and then i'll move on to the next one just like and there That's it's brilliant. all over the place it's all over the place cuz it you're right that that this triumph of a human being ascending it, it it's like like you said bubbling and and i it's almost like okay well no one can ever set that text again because there's one option right you know yeah. like there's there's poems like that though where you're like i, I don't know how else you would do it and the, yeah, the sound world is all yeah it's amazing i know exactly what you mean about that specifically there are so many poems that are i wouldn't touch now because somebody already got it they're like yeah that's how you do that Thank you.
Okay. That concludes part one of this marriage text and music with Eric Whitaker and Tony Silvestri. It's so, oh, it's so good. Just wait till part two. It's amazing. So be sure to check out part two next week. We'll release part two. If you like the podcast, um, go give the show a listen, a like, a review, a rating, a share, all the things you know how to do so well with those magic thumbs. And we look forward to seeing you next week on Early Music Monday.